Alternative Radio Network, PRN.FM. And welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. Actually, have a microphone here. And you'll find us every Monday at prn.fm. And all our back shows are on visionaries.podbean.com. And we're 10 a.m., but could be anytime you're part of the world. And I've got a lot of stuff I want to talk about today, which sort of revolve around Clayton Christensen. And I'll tell you who he is. Uh, But a a lot of digressions as well. (laughs) Brought the New York Times book review. Let me start with that. Uh, So I'm looking at the book review. Front page. Feels Like Home by Colm Tobin. Reviewing Cleanness by Garth Greenwell. Garth Greenwell's first novel, What Belongs to You, uses... The semantic cadences, the world observed and the inner life are slowed down and rhythms in the prose. Uh, One more novel in the New York Times book review about somebody's struggle to grow up or become mature or be married or not be married. And I... uh, I say read. I don't read anything anymore. I listen to because more and more are on audio. I listen to a lot of books and I'm always looking for what to listen to next. And I find the New York Times book review section just not useful as a source. What What is that paper all about? So I get my Sunday Times yesterday and I'm going through it and I get to the business section, and it was something that looked really interesting. But I don't remember what it was. But somehow the press had run out of ink <laughs> right when it was printing the bottom half of the page of my copy of the New York Times. And I couldn't read it. So I could see the headline. So I said, okay, I'll go online and uh, find it. Still haven't found it. But I go online, I go to business. And I see, oh, my God, Clayton Christensen, guru of disruptive innovation, dies at 67. See, no bit. Now, I was talking about Christensen just in our uh, last few shows. Um, I'm very, uh, find him very interesting. I'm very influenced by him. So I'm going to talk a little bit about business books with apologies. But... um, uh, I'm not into business. What do I know about business? But it's a major way that the real world is engaged, which is what I am interested in. So whether it's art or architecture or literature, business is as valid an intersection. I mean, what is Google doing to us? What is Amazon doing to us? What is going to be the consequences of uh, self-driving cars. These things change the world. And uh, so that's what I'm interested in. 
Speaking of changing the world, I, uh, in putting together material for today, I came across The Economist six most important business books of all time. So, The Organization Man, 1956, William White. Really great book. It's, I mean, here it is, half a century old, more than half a century old, totally pertinent for today. And it's about how post-World War II, there starts to be a takeover of, um, by the Borg. <laughs> I say that, and my students don't know what the Borg is. Hello, Star Trek. Um, keep up on uh, popular culture. Anyway, the Borg is this cube that moves through space, absorbing all cultures into it. Resistance is futile. And as organizations became more bureaucratic in the 50s, William White uh, wrote this objection. Management tasks, responsibilities, practices by Drucker. Drucker is the most important business writer, and I haven't read anything by him, so I don't know. In Search of Excellence, I've talked about that a couple of times. Very pertinent to um, my world, academia. It's a business. I mean, my school has 5,000 students, over 1,000 faculty, layers and layers of administration. How is it being run? How well is it being run? And interestingly, um, sort of the book that picked up where In Search of Excellence left off is a book called Good to Great. I don't remember the author, but they, it was so popular, I did a bunch of spinoffs and, you know, how a good company can become a great company. Uh, and one of the spinoffs was a booklet, not very long, on applying the principles to academia. And academics really objected. And what is the basic principle of business and what does good to great advocate? That you do what you say you're going to do. And if you don't get it done, why? What do we need to change? Well, academics freak out, you know, if they're held to that standard. Well, where's that at? You know, I'm, I'm looking at my students and I think, I don't know what our tuition is. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't have to worry about it. I think it's around 45000 So it's about 60000 a year when you lump it all together. And, um, yeah, you know, they, they get scholarships and this and that. So let's just say 50000 They're buying two cars a year for five years. My department's five years. Um, how do they do that? And so, I mean, I say to my students, are, is what's going on in this classroom worth it? And one of my students who is aware said, uh, <clears throat> we're paying you 500, we're paying $500 a, per class, each class for this class. I said, there's about 15 in the room. I said, okay, why don't we skip that? Everybody just give me the check <laughs> each week. Uh, so uh, what, are, what, are, what, what are we giving these people for this huge 
uh, amount of money. Well, we're not allowed to talk about that. Anyway, what else is on this? Uh, Something struck me. Oh, first book here, My Years with General Motors by Alfred Sloan. Did you ever hear of Sloan Kettering Hospital for Cancer Treatment? (coughs) Sloan was the head of and creator of modern General Motors, and Kettering was his chief engineer. And uh, they overtook Ford and made General Motors number one, which, you know, they've long since ceded. But, um, and that led me to think of a book that's not on this list, but is uh, one that is important to me, My Life and Work by Henry Ford. How did Henry Ford do it? He, you know, he changed the world in a little bit of an exaggeration in terms of timing. But basically, in one day, he cut the price of his car in half and doubled the wages of his workers. (laughs) Suddenly, an ordinary line worker in a factory could afford a car. They were being paid enough, and the cars were cheap enough. And, uh, you know, making it not just something for the rich. That changed the world. What does that mean? How does it relate to what we're doing in our world today? So I strongly recommend, uh, I've only, I have, I've only flipped through my years with General Motors by Sloan, but I recently rebought because I read it a long time ago, um, My Life and Work by Henry Ford. And anyway, down at the bottom of this list is The Innovator's Dilemma. When two decades, when new technologies cause great firms to fail, Professor Clayton Christensen. So that's who died. And what he discovered that he wrote up in this book that changed everybody's awareness. I don't know how much it changed the world because there's not a lot they can do about it. Is why big companies get disrupted and successful companies who are doing the right thing. And uh, so let's just take a look at the obit. He broke ground with his assertion that the factors that helped the best companies succeed were also the reason some of these same companies failed. Clayton M. Christensen, a professor at Harvard's business school, whose groundbreaking 1997 book, The Innovator's Dilemma, outlined his theories about the impact of what he called disruptive innovation on leading companies and catapulted him to superstar status at a management guru. Well, he died of leukemia, and before that, uh, his first onset of leukemia was followed by a stroke. So he just didn't stop him. He had to relearn to walk. He had to relearn English because that part of his brain was destroyed by the stroke, and he kept lecturing. Now, what I recommend is not reading that book unless you're really into this stuff, but simply look up Christensen, Clayton Christensen on YouTube because his lectures are wonderful. So let's just start with a clip um, of um, Christensen, and let's go to... um, Clip three, disruptive innovation, and see what uh, he means by this. So one of the things we observed, as I mentioned, is that what kills successful companies is somebody comes in at the bottom of the market 
So if you go back a, a few years ago in telecommunications, the darlings of the industry were Lucent and, and Nortel, made circuit switching technology. And this rusty little or small company, not very consequential, called uh, Cisco, emerged. And their technology, the router, wasn't good enough to be used in voice. But they deployed it at the bottom of the market with data and then went up market and ultimately killed Lucent and Nortel. And uh, the reason why is that when they looked down at a router, the router on every dimension wasn't as good. And so they kept making better and better uh, circuit switch devices. And uh, we ask ourselves, I wonder who decided at Lucent that they should go out and get killed? <laughs> and when was the date on which they decided they would get killed? Okay, so that's an example. Let me give you another one that we'll all uh, grasp more quickly. And that is, <clears throat> think about, well, going back, my school got a DEC VAX computer. It's the size of about three washing machines. One of those washing machines <laughs> looked like one. You opened it up and there was a spinner in there. That's the hard disk, <laughs> which is probably about 20 megabytes, <laughs> which is, you know, our flash drives on our keychains are a million times that. But <clears throat> it, it was a capable computer and we had <coughs> dozens of terminals. I took uh, computer science on those terminals, doing programming with uh, Pascal. Uh, some of my colleagues were doing film animation, making paintings on these computers. And along comes Apple with the Apple II, which, uh, you know, <laughs> basically it's not quite the case, but it could play Pong. That was about it. And... You could do a column of figures or whatever. And so why didn't DEC make um, desktops? And the answer is that DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, was regarded as the most successful uh, company in the country, maybe the world. Fastest growing, best run, making this cutting-edge technology that was undercutting IBM's mainframes, and wh wh why would they be interested in making a toy with a 20% markup that sells for $2,000 that none of their customers wanted or could use when their customers were clamoring for the next generation quarter million dollar uh, mini computer, the next generation VAX, that was selling for a quarter million dollars, had a 50% markup, half that money went into Vax's pocket. Uh, it would have made absolutely no sense for them to try to get into the PC business and sell desktops. Well, what happened was that desktop improved and improved and improved in capability as Intel made more and more capable CPUs we get the um, 8086 and the first IBM PC, and then the 286 comes out, and then the 486 comes out, 
and it can do everything a fax can do for $2,500. <laughs> fax goes out of business like in one day. That I mean, that's it. It's the, the day the, the 486 comes out. Nobody in his right mind would buy a fax, quarter million dollar fax that... Uh, now, that's a little exaggeration. It was actually weeks. <laughs> but that's what happened. So Christensen said, what happened here? And you know, everybody said, well, the deck was stupid. Uh, you know, why didn't they make uh, a PC? And eventually they did, but didn't go anywhere. And <clears throat> the um, Christian said, well, that's interesting that— Deck was being lauded as the best company in the world with the smartest management, the most capable managers, the best technology, the best engineers, and suddenly a month later they're stupid? How'd they get so stupid so quick? And how did five other companies also making the same class of computer all go out of business the same month? Did they all suddenly get with some stupid virus going around? I mean, you can imagine that these six companies would get together and collude on price. Did they all get together and have a meeting and decide, let's all commit suicide? No, something else happened. What was it? And what it was was smart people doing the only thing they could do, which led to their death. And then he looks at industry after industry and sees how that happens. So, uh, for example, now, uh, this is something very specific. He's got a, a recent article out uh, explaining, hey, everybody's saying, oh, you know, we've got a startup. We're going to disrupt the industry. Not all innovation is disruptive. So Uber is not disruptive in his definition. It's challenging the taxi world, but it's his disruptive uh, innovation is one that comes in at the low end, is a toy, is too cheap to do what the, the uh, is too underperforming to do what the top customers need. Uh, the existing companies ignore it because it's no threat to them. It's making cheap stuff that they don't want to make anyway. And probably, you know, they're happy that their customers can get the junk from some company, take them out uh, the burden of making this stuff. Um, but it then slowly starts moving up the ladder. An example of that would be the smartphone. So you get your first smartphones from BlackBerry with its keyboard, and it could sort of get onto the Internet, and it could sort of send an email. Um, and Apple comes along, and was Apple going after BlackBerry? No, they were going after the laptop. So the iPhone, suddenly you can send email. You can watch YouTubes, you can watch TV shows, you can make a phone call. You can, I don't need a laptop anymore. What'd you use the laptop for anyway? Well, you know, I used it to send an email and to check my emails and to check my messages. You can do all that from your phone. 
And in fact, every year now for the past three or four years, they've been selling less laptops than the year before because um, tablets and phones can do that. So that's a disruptive technology. Comes in at the low end, uh, can't really do as good a job as the competition, entrenched competition, but starts to move up in capability. Another example of that is Intel. And one of the things that goes on that Christensen points out is that existing companies overshoot. So, um, you know, you can... (laughs) can spend $60,000 for the the new Mac Pro um, with a (laughs) 28-core Intel chip. But even to get a four-core Intel chip in your laptop, what do you use your laptop for? You know, browse the web, send an email. Uh, I use it to write my books. you can edit movies with this thing. I'm never going to edit a movie. Actually, I do. I edit my, I re- use Camtasia to record my lectures. If you go to John LaBell, L-O-B-E-L-L, two L's, in uh, YouTube, you'll find a hundred of my videos. Uh, I record my videos in class, and then I put them up for my students. And they've been viewed uh, almost 200,000 times all over the world. So all that's interesting. I'll talk about that sometime. And in fact, Jordan Peterson, who I follow, um, talks about how he thinks um, YouTube is going to beat or disrupt cable TV. Uh, But anyway, so I, uh, I don't do serious editing, but I clean up those those uh, videos I make of my lectures, you know, I clip off the end and the beginning, uh, take out when I'm hunting around looking for a uh, for a, a website, take out some of the ahs, <laughs> take out the coughs. Uh, so I do do some editing. But basically, my laptop is maybe 10 times as powerful as I need. And that's true for most people. So here comes the phone with a chip that's nowhere near as powerful as the chip in your laptop, uh, but it'll do email and uh, browse the web. But then that chip starts moving up in capability. And it's now speculated that the next generation Macs are going to have the uh, Apple's A chip instead of Intel's uh, eight eight thousand processor. That that little chip in the phone has become capable enough for what all people really need in a laptop. Well, why would Apple do that? Because that chip uses a quarter as much power as this monster chip that we don't need in our laptop. So <laughs> the, the two power eaters in your laptop are the chip and the screen. And they keep making the screen more efficient and they keep making the chip you know, more efficient. And so now, yeah, maybe you can get 12 hour battery life. 
not mine. I have an old, I buy mine used. But, you know, the new uh, the new MacBooks maybe can get 12-hour battery life. And eventually better batteries will solve that. But in the meantime, so <clears throat> Christensen was invited to talk to the board of directors of, um, or I don't know, the key management board of Intel. Andy Grove was running the company, and he was kept waiting in the, he was scheduled to talk for 20 minutes. And they got delayed, and they said, well, come in, we, we've got 10 minutes. He said, I'm not going to talk to you for 10 minutes. Uh, we skip it, or you give me a whole half hour. And I said, okay, you get a half hour. By the time he was done, they said, okay, we're completely changing the direction of the company. <laughs> Our next step should not be to making a yet more powerful monster chip. Our next step should be making a whole new generation of super power thrifty chips. Because if not, we're going to get disrupted by these chips that are in phones and tablets. So that's disruption. Um, technological disruption comes in at the low end and starts creeping up and blindsides a company. So <clears throat> Uber is, uh, you know, uh, totally decimating the taxi industry in New York. To have a taxi, you need a medallion. So a few people save up and they were were a million dollars and buy a medallion for a million dollars. The car is cheap. <laughs> yeah, the car's 25,000 bucks, but the medallion is a million. But most people don't buy a medallion. They, they, these big companies, they'll buy a thousand medallions. That's a billion dollars, which they borrow from the bank. Uh, and then as a driver, you go there, you give them a thousand dollars, and you, the car is yours for a week. And you can do anything you want. You can split it with another driver. You drive 12 hours. The other driver drives 12 hours. You can, you know, drive eight hours and park it in your driveway. That's up to you. You keep all the money. Um, but you gave the company a thousand bucks for the car with a medallion. <clears throat> well, all of a sudden, due to Uber, those medallions are worth half a million dollars. So suddenly, the company that borrowed a billion dollars gets a phone call from the bank. <laughs> they say, um, <clears throat> the collateral you gave us, this thousand medallions, is now only worth half a billion dollars. Could you send over a check for 500 million to make good on the collateral? <laughs> so... Uh, it's not funny. Uh, the, the people who bought them individually are committing suicide. You know, suddenly your uh, your whole retirement, million dollars, went into this medallion, and you just lost half, half, half a million dollars. And the company that uh, lost half a billion, they're bankrupt. But anyway, uh, but Uber came in at the high end. Uh, they didn't come in at the low end. And so it's a disruption, but it's a different kind of disruption. And if you look up Christensen on uh, 
YouTube. And I recommend that as an alternative to reading the books. Uh, he gave a talk at Google. Oh, if you want to hear great lectures, go to Google, t Google Talks on YouTube. I think you can also find it on Google Talks. But uh, during lunch, Google has uh, really interesting people come in and talk to the Google execs. And uh, it's, you know, the top people have the hottest current books. And so um, um, check them out and check out Christensen's talk. It's, it's an hour long and it's a really good one. Let's take uh, another quick look at um, Christensen. He talks about understanding, okay, you want to improve your product. So McDonald's sells a thick shake. I don't think it's called a milkshake because I don't think there's any milk in it, but it's called a thick shake. Uh, we want to sell more. How do we make them better? Should we make them thicker? Should we make them thinner? Should we put more vanilla in? And they do all this research and they get nowhere. And Christensen figures out, he puts his uh, students um, to watch people buying thick shakes and interview them. And they ask them, what job? Did you buy that thick shake to do? So let's listen to clip four, where he talks about the job to be done. And there's another theory called um, jobs to be done. And what it asserts is that, you know, here's clay. I have characteristics. I unfortunately am 60 years old now. I live in the suburbs. Three, uh, five children, un unfortunately, have all left and are living independently, and uh, life has become boring. <laughs> but the fact that I have those characteristics doesn't cause me to go out and buy the New York Times. There might be a correlation between my characteristics and the propensity to buy the New York Times, but the characteristics don't cause me to do anything. What causes us to do something is there's a job that arises in our life and we have to get the job done. And what causes us to buy a product or a service is we have to reach out and find something that can do the job and pull it into our lives. And that's the causal mechanism behind a purchase is understanding what's, what's the job and the insight there is that the customer is the wrong unit of analysis. It's the job that we need to understand. So these are all theories, and some of you know those. And, and a number. So that's um, a new book by Christensen on the job to be done. And he starts with the McDonald's milkshake. And he says, so if McDonald wants to sell more milkshakes, let's find out why do people buy them? What's the job that somebody wants to be done? And what else might do that job? So in the morning, they discover that people buy a milkshake to have something to do in the car while they're com commuting that they can do with one hand. <laughs> you can hold a milkshake and suck on oh, and last for a half an hour because <laughs> it's so hard to get it up the straw. And <laughs> say, well, and what else might do the job? <laughs> One of the interviewees says, well, a banana is a really bad choice. <laughs> well, you might get a bagel. 
but a bagel's dry. <laughs> it's really hard to put cream cheese on a bagel while you're steering with your knees. <laughs> and, and, and a donut is a bad choice because you arrive at work with powder all over your suit. So now we know why people are buying the milkshake and we know what the competition is. And then why do people buy, why do men with their sons buy a milkshake in the afternoon? Well, oh, it's, you know, to make the kid feel good. Dad loves you. He's buying you a milkshake. So now we know the job to be done. So uh, (laughs) uh, it's a really interesting theory and uh, it's one of his books. If you go to Amazon, you'll find his books and you'll, you'll find this. So uh, that's Clayton Christensen. Maybe we should do one more. And uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But if we go to um, clip number five, uh, Clayton, Clayton Christensen's a Christian Mormon. He did his... Uh, missionary work in South Korea when he was young. He's very serious about a meaningful life. So let's see how he, uh, he did a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? But because they did all of these things independently and what made sense in those circumstances, when it's summed up, it's summed up to disaster. Well, the reason why it sums up to disaster is they're trying to Um, maximize their profitability and typically the way you calculate profitability tomorrow's investments that pay off tomorrow go to the bottom line and are much more tangible than investments that pay off 10 years from now well when I go back to my graduating classes I graduated from the MBA program at Harvard in 1979 We have a reunion every five years. When we came back for our fifth reunion, man, everybody was happy. Most of our classmates had married people who were much better looking than my classmates. (laughs) They're doing well in their career. But as we hit the 10th and 15th and 20th and then the 25th anniversaries, oh my gosh, my friends were coming back uh, not happy with their lives. And very many of them had gotten divorced and their spouses had remarried and they were raising their chi- my classmates' children on the other side of the country, alienated from them. And I guarantee that none of my classmates ever planned when they graduated from the, the business school to go out and get divorced. Great. Uh, so, Christensen uh, talks about how Let's say you're Apple, and uh, they have plenty of cash. Capital is no capital is free. I mean, the European countries that have negative interest rates, they'll pay you <laughs> to take you know a hundred million dollars. Um, uh, and Peter Thiel, who we'll hear from in a moment, very interestingly talks about this. He says, uh, so Apple has an estimated uh, three hundred billion dollars in cash. What does that tell you? That they're successful? It tells you they don't know what to do. If Apple knew what to do next, they'd be spending every penny of that to make the next great thing. 
you know, where's our Apple TV? Where's our Apple self-driving car? <laughs> as, as somebody put it, uh, maybe it was Peter Thiel, they promised us flying cars and jetpacks, and they gave us 120 characters. <laughs> where, where is it? Other than the phone, where's our, you know, what have they been doing for the past 40 years? So uh, if Apple knew what to do, if Apple, let's say they say, okay, we're going to spend a billion dollars making the phone uh, $50, our cost to make the phone $50 less, they'll rake in a lot of money right away, guaranteed, because they know they're going to sell 100 million phones next year. So that uh, times $50 a phone this $5 billion return on your $1 billion investment guaranteed. Or suppose they say, we're going to spend a billion dollars on a far-out risky project that might materialize in five years. Which are you going to do? Well, if you keep doing the first, you're going to be profitable and one day you'll go out of business because you have no, nothing in the pipeline. If you do the second, you're, it, it's risk. It might not work out. There's a great story. I've got to find out if there's a book on it. But, you know, Vietnam is described as a, an utter disaster, costing the United States trillions of dollars, killed, uh, you know, maybe a million people in Vietnam, tens of thousands of Americans, uh, ruined the economy, uh, totally so distrust of the government and the system. It was a disaster. Well, right around that time, IBM was having its Vietnam. They spent a fortune on their next generation computer, and they couldn't make it work. And you don't know anything about it because it didn't happen. But it was so, you, it's risky. There's no guarantee these things are going to work. But if you don't take those risks, you don't get the next Apple the next, uh, you know, Google, the next uh, whatever. So what Christensen is talking about here and how will you measure your life, uh, his uh, Harvard MBA classmates, every day we're faced with a choice. Every week we're faced with a choice. Uh, do I go in on Saturday? If I go in on Saturday, I get the project done. I get it. I do a great job. I do better than the, the people who don't go in on Saturday. I get the promotion. I get the raise. I can make my wife happy by we get a bigger house. We can put away the nest egg so our kids can go to a good school. Um, and every Saturday you're faced with the choice. And you say, ah, you know, I can, I can go to my kids' ball game next week. Well, at the end of 10 years, you've got the money, your kid hates you, your wife is divorcing you. <laughs> uh, so which should you do? Should you go in on Saturday and get the immediate reward, get the bonus? Uh, should you skip Saturday, be the slacker in the office, and spend the time with your family? And so that's what Christensen addresses in this beautiful little book, How Will I Measure My Life? Well, 
um, that's enough on Christensen. Let's do something else fun. Most interesting person, I think, out there at the moment in this area is Peter Thiel. So actually, before we do that, how much time do we have? I want to do something fun. I'm going to mention some people. We mentioned Christensen. I just mentioned Peter Thiel. And so what I did is I went to the, um, I, there's a lecture I give on future technology. And I make a point in the lecture. I talk about um, when I was a kid, I had a, an LP record. One side of it was the nature and size of the universe. The other side was uh, Einstein's relativity. And I listened to it over and over. There, this is the 50s. There's no cassette tapes. There's no, you know, uh, PBS, TV, National Public Radio don't exist. Um, that was it, other than books. But in audio, that was my exposure to somebody interesting talking about something I was interested in. So in this lecture on future technology, I referred to a dozen people. The point I made in the lecture was every one of these people, I can go to YouTube and see a dozen lectures. I, that's, I do that all the time. Uh, and I said something interesting. I don't find, I find myself spending more time online than I do with the New York Times. I get the New York Times every day. I've been getting it since study hall in the seventh grade. Um, but I'm finding less and less there that, I, that speaks to me. So I made a list of these people I had in my future lecture for various reasons they were mentioned. And... I, I said, oh, I can find them all on YouTube. Let's see what the New York Times has to say about these people. Because New York Times is index. If you, <laughs> you put John Lobel in a search in the New York Times, see what they said about me in the 60s. <laughs> Don't do it. Uh, but anyway, uh, <clears throat> so I put in Clayton Christensen. There's the obit. He's mentioned one time in 2013. The one of the maybe four most important people in business theory mentioned four, once in the New York Times. Um, Matt Ridley, brilliant guy, incredible books. Uh, the Optimist, what is it? The Rational Optimist, incredible book. Uh, there are three or four mentions, uh, reviews of a book he did on the evolution of everything. No other mention. Um, Peter Thiel, a couple times in business. Stephen Kotler, no mention. Craig Venter. I, uh, what can you say? The guy beat the government to sequencing the human genome, and he's now building artificial life uh, one DNA at a time. Uh, it, an acre of corn will give you 16 gallons of ethanol. Craig Venter's engineering an algae that in one acre will give you 10,000 gallons of ethanol per year. 
he's doing this mind-blowing stuff. He's mentioned once in 2012. Um, Sebastian Thrun, once in a story on Google. Now, Sebastian Thrun, what did he give us? Google Glass, um, the self-driving car. He's the one who made it happen. Uh, Udacity, um, he, he teaches a course in computer science, and he says only 100 students can fit in the lecture hall. He says, hmm, what if I put the course online? 180,000 people took the course. He says, okay, I'm starting a company. <laughs> I mean, is this important? I mean, are we noticing that universities are closing? Hello? Um, Peter Diamandis, no mention in the New York Times. So who is Peter Diamandis? Well, he's a hyperactive, high-energy guy who's short since I couldn't become an astronaut. So he says, okay, I'll get a degree in engineering and a medical degree. <laughs> this guy just, you know. <clears throat> so he's reading a biography of Lindbergh, and he says, oh, my God. I didn't realize that Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic to win a $25,000 prize. And there were a lot of other people working on it, not just to do it, but to win that prize. And maybe a quarter million dollars was spent on R&D by these different teams, and he won, to do this for 25000 So he went to some rich people. He created the X Prize. And... I got a printout on the X Prize. Where is it? I'll just describe it. Here we go. Um, so Peter Diamandis was born in 1961. Peter H. Diamandis is a Greek-American engineer, physician, and entrepreneur, best known for being, this is uh, Wikipedia, best known for being founder and chairman of the X Prize Foundation, co-founder and executive chairman of Singularity University, and author of a bunch of books. XPRIZE is a nonprofit organization that designs and manages public competitions intended to encourage technological developments that could benefit humanity. So, he says, he gets some rich person to put up $25 million for the first organization that can launch a space vehicle go into a certain low Earth orbit, come back with three people, pilot and two passengers, come back and do it again within a week. In other words, the reason why space flight is so, so <laughs> expensive is that at the end of each flight, you throw the spaceship away. What if you flew to California and then they put the jumbo jet in a crusher and made a new one to fly home? <laughs> That'd be expensive. So <clears throat> we're now in the age of uh, repeatable space flights, and this tried to kick that off. So he's got a dozen of these X prizes, and one of them is, if you're Star Trek, remember Star Trek, Dr. McCoy has a tricorder. He just waves that over the patient, and it does a diagnosis and prints out treatment options. Well, let's have that. Let's make it. 
They're working on it. He's got an X prize for it. Um, uh, probably the worst health problem in the world today is dirty water. Let's create an affordable way to create clean water. He's got an X prize for that. And people are working on it. So, and he's a big Singularity University trains uh, executives in future futurism. And they have leading technology people lecture. You go there for, I don't know, a week or two weeks of uh, intensive. It's for ex high-end executives. No mention in the New York Times ever. Anyway, let's do one more. And uh, I'm a big fan of Peter Thiel. Let's talk for a minute what he's about. But he's the um, co-founder of PayPal. And then each of the, they called the PayPal Mafia. They each pocketed a couple hundred million when they sold it. And he set up an investment firm. And he's funded Facebook, SpaceX, Tesla, and when he's um, uh, when he's interviewing somebody, uh, his favorite question is, "What do you believe that?" So let's go to clip one. What do you believe that almost nobody else believes? Today we would uh, divide the world into the developed and developing nations. The developing nations are those that are copying the developed world. Uh, and, um, and so this develop, developing dichotomy is a pro-globalization dichotomy. Uh, it's sort of a convergence theory of history where the entire world will become more and more homogenous as globalization continues apace. But it is also implicitly an anti-technological dichotomy because when we say that we're living in the developed world, we are implicitly saying that we're living in that part of the world where nothing new is going to be done, where things are finished, they're complete, um, and we can expect uh, decades of uh, stagnation and sclerosis, and the younger generation should expect to have a lower living standard than their parents, and uh, we have sort of this rather bleak view of the future. And I think we should not accept that sort of a label. We should not accept this idea that we're living in the developed world. And so I will, I will end by saying that I think we should always return to the very contrarian question, um, how can we go about developing the developed world? Thank you very much. Okay, so um, that's a, a general theme of his annoyance at the lack of technological development. And again, Apple, just picking on Apple, that's true of all successful companies, is sitting on $300 billion of cash. What does that tell you? Oh, that Apple's successful. No, it tells you they don't know what to do next. So let's do one, uh, one last one, clip two. And uh, here's what he likes to ask interviewees. I think if you're just starting a business, uh, one of the questions that's always valuable to answer is what do you know that's true that nobody um, else understands? Or, um, or more prosaically, uh, what, uh, what great business exists that nobody is building? So, um, I, I like to pull this on my students, and, but it's not really fair to them because uh, there are two parts to this question. <clears throat> he'll, he'll, you know, and he's building a company, he's interviewing people, or somebody comes to him for funding. 
uh, he's asking them a question. He'll say, what do you believe that almost no one else believes? And they say, oh, well, uh, the American educational system is broken. He says, no, that doesn't count. Everybody knows that. Everybody believes that. Oh, yeah. What do you believe that nobody else believes? Well, now, there's two problems. One is that's difficult. But if you're coming to me, Peter Thiel, for, you know, $100 million for a company, uh, <laughs> it better not be what everybody else is already doing. <laughs> you know, what, what is it that's unique that you believe? What great company do you envision that nobody else is doing? And here's the other part. Um, do you dare say? If I, I don't ask this of my students because it's not fair. What do you believe that nobody else believes? And what are they supposed to say? Well, I don't believe global warming is real. You can't say that. You say that in my school, um, you know, <laughs> you will be ostracized. So uh, if you say whatever, you, oh, yes, you know, global warming is a problem. Oh, brilliant. You know, you're wonderful. But there's nothing new there. Um, but is there something that nobody else is seeing that you see? Uh, well, then you're going to be a weirdo. And one of his favorite things he likes to say, one of the things I notice with these people that I follow, and Peter Thiel's one of them, is that a lot of them have a stock lecture. <laughs> so you hear the same thing over and over. But uh, Peter Thiel likes to say um, that a lot of the great company founders have Asperger's, or, you know, they're on the autism um, spectrum. And by, the, by, by that he means when he was in um, uh, Stanford Law School, you know, everybody wanted to do the same thing. Everybody was going to go into this, and then they were all going to go into that because that's what everybody's doing. And so if you're sociable... You get along with people, you uh, want to please people, you want to hang out with people, you want to do what other people are doing. That's not the kind of person who's going to start a revolutionary new company. But somebody who's um, unsociable, doesn't hang out with other people, doesn't get along with people, sits in his room and thinks and sees things that are there rather than what everybody else is telling him. Those are the people that are going to come up with these, uh, these radical new ideas. Well, with that, um, uh, let's uh, wrap up. Uh, this has been John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. See you next week. <laughs>